You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. All right, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. I love this idea about the seeds. I asked Kyle, do we know what kind of seeds these are? Like, it'd be sort of interesting if you just didn't know, like it was random and you plant them and like, you're like, yay, I got flowers. Or you're like, oh, I got eggplant. (laughs) But I love the idea of that. So thanks everybody who's behind that. So it's the week after Easter and to try to engage with what this means and what the resurrection of Christ means I like to put myself there. And so I imagine myself as one of the disciples the week after Easter. Well, that week leading up to Easter was hard and it was confusing and it was emotional and it was disorienting. Imagine if you're one of the 12 disciples. Now we're 11 because Judas, who had been closely in our midst, hung himself Talk about hard, confusing, disorienting. And then the resurrection happened. And the resurrection has made it clear to the disciples, to us, that Jesus really is Lord, that he really is life, that he really is the way and the truth and the life. And Jesus said to the disciples, let's go back to Galilee, meet me there after the resurrection. Kind of like, let's go home and start life as we've known it, but in the newness of what we now know with Christ alive. So he's going to go back. He's going to meet them in Galilee. You may remember, and we'll see this later in our series about Peter. There's this beautiful, tender, intimate restoration of Peter, the apostle, who was so full of statements of bravado, of loyalty, and he failed them so miserably And he has this restoration experience with Jesus back in Galilee. So, so much is new, but not everything. Still a Roman occupation, still bills to be paid, still nets to be repaired, still taxes, still challenging people. Still getting back to Galilee and seeing that guy. Oh, yeah, I forgot about him. What a pain. There's still life. But Jesus' resurrection has made it so clear that he's on the move, making everything new. Okay, but speaking of things still having challenges involved in them, while the disciples have returned to Galilee, there's a lot of a brewing cauldron back in Jerusalem. And there's a guy named Saul. Saul was from Tarsus, and then he spent most of his young life in Jerusalem. Saul was from an educated family. He was trained in Hebrew teaching. He trained under a very famous rabbi named Gamaliel, whose grandfather was a rabbi named Hillel, who was perhaps the most famous rabbi of Jewish history. He's an educated young man. By the time of his bar mitzvah, when he would have been 13, he would have been very well acquainted with the Hebrew scriptures and steeped in the traditions of Jewish belief. 
And so while the disciples have gone up to Galilee and they're rebuilding their lives there, back in Jerusalem, this guy named Saul is hatching plans that are going to bring a lot of pain and difficulty to the disciples. Soon, Saul will go on a hunt for people, people who are following Jesus. At that time, this early band of people following Jesus got nicknamed The Way. And so he goes on a hunt to find these people. In Acts, we read about the stoning of Stephen, who was a believer, and shares a beautiful testimony and story of how and why he came to faith in Christ. He goes through all the Old Testament history, explaining to people how Christ is the Jewish Messiah. And Saul's not hearing it. And so Stephen is stoned to death. And Saul is participating and aiding and abetting in the process of Stephen's execution. So the disciples are up in Galilee at the moment. They're unaware of the cauldron brewing in Jerusalem. Saul is brewing this cauldron in Jerusalem, unaware that there's a risen Savior who has his eye on him. So we got a head start on this a few weeks ago in our series. We picked up with Ananias, which comes right after this section I'm going to read for you now. Acts 9, 1 through 9. This is the depiction of how Saul was met by Christ. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He didn't eat or drink anything. So if you remember, the section that comes next is when the Spirit speaks to a guy named Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go into Damascus and into a home on Straight Street, and you're going to find a man named Saul there, and I want you to minister to him. And Ananias says, basically, not a chance. Do you know who this guy is and what his reputation is? But God has beautiful ways of calling Ananiases into our lives when these seeds of faith need someone to help encourage them to get into the soil and take root. And God may ask you to be an Ananias for various people throughout your life and faith. So Jesus said, I'm making everything new. That was our focus of our Easter message last week. And what we're going to focus on in the before and after is how he is making people new. It's one of the most conspicuous ways. Like when Jesus says, I'm making everything new, and you're thinking, well, there's still taxes to pay. There's still a Roman occupation. Like, how are you making everything new? Where we see this most prevalently is how he makes people new. And Saul is going to be made new. And Saul is going to be made new in the way that God will move in his life 
for who he is with his personality. And it's not the same for everybody. But for Saul, this man with this personality is going to be made new in this way. Okay, so let's get some perspective. Back up for a second. Before Christ is in our lives, before we have really come to know Jesus personal, real, and alive, when we have been living on our own apart from him, what we're doing is we're living life the way we think it should be lived. We're doing life the way we think we're going to get what we want out of it. We're living life from our perspective, seeing things the way we see them. And most of the time, we're convinced that this is the way to do it, and that this is going to give me the life I want, that this is the freedom that I want, that this is the life that I want, and often we'll have laced in there the life that I deserve. In other words, we're doing the best life we can from how we see things. Okay? In 2 Corinthians 3, now note when I'm reading these verses from Corinthians, this is Paul writing this stuff. So you have to do some time travel here because we're talking about his conversion, but then some of these verses are him talking about what's going on in the big picture. Even to this day, he says, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What he's doing is he's giving us a picture that when we are living our life our way, doing it through the way we see things, there is a veil that keeps us from seeing God, seeing Christ, seeing his gospel. In other words, we're unable to. We can't see it. Okay, and so he's going to go on and suggest in his writings that something has to happen to lift that veil. Something has to happen to remove that blocking of our ability to see Christ for real. And we're going to learn as we read the Holy Testament that it's always the Holy Spirit who does that, who removes it. Okay, so notice he says, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. See, but wait a minute. Before I had Christ in my life, I was living my life, my vision, my way, my freedom. You know what the word that occurred four times in each of those? My life, my way, my vision, my freedom. In other words, my life has me at the center, me is driving it, me creates the vision, I am the center of all of it. And I'm living life the way I think it ought to be lived. He says, now the Lord is the spirit, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay, we're living what we think is freedom. But so often when we're living this way, we wouldn't have known it when we were in it. We wouldn't have known how to say it when we were in it. But if Christ becomes real and we do have an after to that before, then we can begin to see it. I thought I was living my best life. What I see now is that I was living for myself. I was confused. I was lonely. My relationships weren't healthy and life-giving. I didn't have clear direction, and I didn't know what really matters in life. But I didn't know that then. I only can say that now that Christ is in my life. In other words, he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
What I would say to that is, and where the Spirit of the Lord isn't, there are false promises of freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord isn't, there are false promises of freedom. And when our self-driving nature is pursuing what we call freedom, we're going to learn that those were false promises of freedom. Paul Tripp said, True freedom is never found in putting yourself at the center with your choices and behavior shaped by your allegiance to you. Real freedom is only ever found when God's grace liberates you to live for one infinitely greater than you. Okay, so more on this theme about this veil and the inability to see. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul writes this, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who is the guy writing that? The guy writing that is speaking autobiographically. I know. I was unable, unable to see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. And so the Holy Spirit will become the one that removes this veil. So I was living my life for me, the life that I thought was the good life, the life that I thought gets the goods, the life that I thought would be fulfilling. And yet I didn't realize that it was living this old disobedience. I was living my life myself. My relationships are shallow, not life-giving. I was living without God. I was living without real life-giving community. In other words, I was proud. I was proud. I looked down from my perch, and I was the one who was the king of my life, and I evaluated and judged everything accordingly. Well, no, re no wonder I couldn't see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. C.S. Lewis says, A proud person is always looking down on things and people, and as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something above you. So this life that I was thinking was the good life is a life of confusion and loneliness, unhealthy relationships without clear direction, or really knowing what matters in life. And remarkably, for many of us, we can remember, and we were going full speed doing that. So Jesus is making people new. The Holy Spirit is removing this veil that has kept us from being able to see Christ. He is making us new in so many different kinds of ways. But one of the things that I've realized as I have really tried to pay attention to this over the years is one of the things that he doesn't change is the core personality of who we are. And here's the way I've come to see this. So Jesus is going to reach this guy, Saul. And he's going to need this guy. Saul is passionate. He is committed. He is uncompromising. He is persevering. He will not take no for an answer. And so God is going to convert the man, but he doesn't change our core personality. You know why? Because when you look at someone like Saul, I think what the scriptures tell us is God is saying, I'm going to need that personality. I'm going to use that personality. That personality, those core characteristics of who you are, even though now back here, 
They're being lived out in a life that is without purpose, without clarity, without vision. I'm going to use those core personality traits. In other words, I'm going to need a man who has that kind of steel rod in his personality because to begin to grow this church against all the persecution, all the opposition, all the hardship that's coming, I need that guy. I need that personality. So he's going to take this man with that personality to accomplish what he wants to accomplish, making the man new, and yes, sanctifying the personality, taking those negative old pieces and turning them into a Christ-centered direction. Maybe this resonates with you. I don't know. It resonates with me. As I've tried to pay attention to these things over the years, I know a little bit about my personality. Visionary, passionate, creative, stubborn, competitive. And on our best days, what we can say is, God, would you take that core stuff of me? And I know there's been a lot of ways that core stuff has manifested in ways that aren't so great. I know there's a lot of ways that that core stuff has said stuff, done stuff that isn't so great. But God wants to use your core personality to accomplish beautiful plans. So we were drifting. We were searching spiritually, relationally. We were searching for purpose. We're searching for meaning. We wouldn't have known to be able to say it then but we can see it when we once come to Christ. All right, let's take a little bit of a look at how Paul describes this in greater detail. So in Acts chapter 9, we get the story. Luke is the writer of Acts. We get the story of how Luke renders this. But in the late chapters of Acts, there's some beautiful renderings here because you get Paul telling the story when he's on trial before different Roman leaders. So Luke tells it like, hey, this is what happened. Well, then Paul late in the book of Acts says, let me tell you what happened to me. Here's how we have it in Acts 26. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. You'll note in Acts chapter 9, when Luke told it, we get that same rendering. That is Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We don't get the why do you kick against, it's hard for you to kick against the goads part. Paul tells that more personally. Let's unpack this for a minute. Why are you persecuting me? Me? I mean, as far as we know, he wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was chasing down Christians. So connected is Jesus in the body of Christ with those who are committed to Christ, that if you're persecuting people who are committed to Christ, you are persecuting Christ. So Jesus says to Saul, you're persecuting me. I want to hear in my mind the word pal, but that's not there in the text. <laughs> you're persecuting me. But then this little phrase, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. This is a mysterious little phrase, so here's what it means. Shepherds in those days would have both a shepherd's crook, or it might be a long stick, might be a walking stick. Some, the one with a hook on the end is, 
I think more for kids' Christmas pageants than it is for actual shepherding. But in every herd, there were always a couple of goats or sheep that were a pain in the neck to all the other goats and sheep. And the way they manifest this mostly is by kicking. So they would come up close to other sheep, and then with their hind legs, they would kick them forcefully. And this created all kinds of problems for the herd. So most shepherds would have a steel rod that was sharpened, almost like an arrow point at the end. And when they had goats or sheep in their flock that were doing that, they would walk around behind one of these goats or sheep and hold this prod about that far from his hind leg. And next time he kicked hard into it, he kicked into that steel pointed prod and it would hurt like crazy. And that's how they would teach them to stop doing that. Isn't that fascinating that Jesus says to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Like Saul, I know you're doing everything you believe is right. It's hard for you to live this way. It is hard for you to live with all this turmoil inside of you. It is hard for you to live in opposition to God. That's the ultimate statement. Why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, so... Saul's attention is gotten and he's blinded. Not everybody's conversion experiences are like this. A before and after, as I said weeks ago, can be gradual or it can be a matter of fanning into flame the presence of the Spirit in your life. But in Saul's case, it's quite dramatic. Notice that with this personality that he's got, when Ananias was told about Paul, He says, this is the man I have appointed to serve me and I have shown him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You got to have a certain kind of personality to be able to do that. You got to have a certain guy or a certain woman who has the strength of personality to be able to endure that, persevere that, get this fledgling church up and going. So it's been said that when we are converted to Christ, that you got to go with me on this. There are three conversions, a conversion to Christ, a conversion to the body of Christ, and a conversion to the work of Christ. The conversion to Christ is a new Lord in my life. The conversion to the body of Christ is new relationships and commitment to this body. And the conversion to the work of Christ is new purpose and new focus. That in time, when our conversion matures, it is not just a conversion to Christ, but a conversion to the body of Christ and a conversion to the work of Christ. A person who says, I'm converted, but does nothing in terms of life in the body of Christ or for the work of Christ, has short-shrifted this conversion. So here we are called to the new way, truth, and life. And here we are called to this community, the church, where our relationships are transformed to life-giving relationships, and now we're called to the work of Christ where we're given new vision, new purpose. The articulations of what happens in people's lives when they speak of how the Holy Spirit moved in their life and brought them from darkness to light are as unique and varied as the creativity of God and the lives and circumstances of billions of people in the world. You may remember, I don't know if you do, Blaise Pascal. I learned about Blaise Pascal in like math in school. I was never told that Blaise Pascal 
was a beautiful, significant Christian. When Blaise Pascal died, inside of his coat, he had written on a piece of parchment that he had pinned into all of his coats so that when he closed his coat, he wore it close to his heart. And this is how Pascal did this. Just imagine the man's life and imagine what leads him to do this. So this little reading says, a piece of parchment recording the decisive experience in 1654 was found sewn into Pascal's clothing after his death. It seems that he carried it with him at all times. And this is what it says. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23, November. From about half past 10 in the evening until half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac. God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars. Certainty, certainty, heartfelt, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, God of Jesus Christ. My God and your God. Thy God shall be my God. The world forgotten and everything except God. He can only be found by the ways taught in the Gospels. Greatness of the human soul. O righteous Father, the world had not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. And this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I have cut myself off from him, shunned him, denied him, crucified him. Let me never be cut off from him. He can only be kept by the ways taught in the gospel. Sweet and total renunciation of myself. Total submission to Jesus Christ and my director. Everlasting joy in return for one day's effort on earth. I will not forget thy word. Amen. What I love when I read this is how authentically it reads to the way a man would jot notes. This is like him jotting notes of his experience and his memories of that night. And he's written this and he sews this into his clothing. Saul, if you were told that Saul was converted, you'd be like Ananias. No way. Not a chance. If God can convert Saul, if the Holy Spirit can get this man's attention and move him from who he was and what he was doing to who he becomes passionate for Christ, then he can convert anybody. And I know that I bet for many of you, you have some people in mind that you're praying for that they would come home to life in Christ, but you're praying words that internally you're thinking this is impossible. If he can convert Saul, he can convert anyone. So our son Dave went to the same college that Elizabeth and I did. And when he was in college, he was at this parents' weekend event. We were not able to go that weekend. A guy walks up to him, because this is a name tag affair, and a guy who's my age walks up to him, and he says, hey, your name's Dave Dwight? Yes. Sir, I hope, think. Yes. <laughs> and he says, is your father David Dwight? Yes. Is your dad a pastor in Virginia? Yes. This is true. This guy says, Dave, will you go home and tell your father something that's going to really surprise him? And Dave says, sure. Tell your father that Brian Morris became a Christian. Dave came home, he told me the story. I was like, whoa. <laughs> Brian, if you're watching, it's a beautiful story. 
Maybe you know the story of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson worked in the Nixon administration. His nickname was the henchman. He was called Nixon's henchman. Like he didn't cross Colson. Colson was a guy you, you did not want to get told you had an appointment with Chuck Colson. It was not a good day if you learned you had an appointment with Chuck Colson. So the whole Watergate affair unfolds. The trials come along and Colson and a few others are indicted and put in prison. Colson becomes a Christian when he's in prison. Okay, so there's a guy in D.C. who's ministering to different people on Capitol Hill, and he meets with Colson in prison. And after the meeting with Colson, he calls a senator who's a friend of his. This senator's name is Harold Hughes. And he says to Harold, who's a committed believer, hey, there's a guy who's going to be getting out of prison soon, and when he gets out of prison, I would like you to go meet with him. He's a brand new believer. He met Christ in prison. Harold Hughes said, who is it? And the guy said, Chuck Colson. And Harold Hughes hung up on him. <laughs> An hour later, Harold Hughes called him back. He said, I'm sorry. I don't think what I did was the right thing to do. But he said, do you know who Chuck Colson is? Guy said, yeah, I know who Chuck Colson is. Harold Hughes said, no, I'm not going to go meet Chuck Colson. The guy said, Chuck Colson is a new creation in Christ. Would you meet with him and encourage him in these early steps? I read this and I think he's asking him to be an Ananias for him. And so Harold Hughes says, I'll meet with him as long as it's late at night and in a remote location because I do... I do not want to be seen anywhere with Chuck Colson. I don't want pictures. I don't want this in the paper. I don't want anything. And so lo and behold, Chuck Colson gets out of prison, and this mutual friend arranges this meeting. And Harold Hughes and Chuck Colson are having a conversation late at night in this remote location, Colson recently out of prison. Colson telling Harold Hughes the story of how he came to receive Christ. And the guy is asking him questions. And he's having to get over a million I can't believe it's inside of him. Finally, after Colson finishes sharing, Colson starts to cry. He starts to think of his life, who he is compared to who he was, what he was doing, what he was focused on, and how God has shown him this forgiveness and this Holy Spirit given new life. Harold Hughes gets up out of his chair and he walks over and he stands in front of him. Colson's in a chair. And Harold Hughes said, would you stand up? And Colson stands up. And Harold Hughes hugs him and he says, Chuck Colson, we are brothers for life. You may know that Chuck Colson then went on to start a ministry called Prison Fellowship, a beautiful ministry that's offered the gospel of Christ and the hope of life in Christ to thousands and thousands and thousands of incarcerated people. Alan Redpath said, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. And so God does this making new in people's lives. The Holy Spirit has been doing this from the times of Christ and he's doing it every single day in the world, here, there, and everywhere, making people new. He starts us in this life as he did with Paul, Peter, Brian, Chuck, me, and many of you. 
and he invites us to grow into this life as he will make us new. So it's interesting sometimes, isn't it, when we see people, I'm not sure why we use this phrase, but we tend to say to people, hey, what's new? What's new? Well, for purposes of our discussion, when the Holy Spirit works in our lives, what's new? A new identity, a new direction, new hope, new purpose, new values, new goals, new gratitude, and new joy. All a gift from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are here today. It's us, our stories, with where we are in our lives, with our personalities and our places. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, move into our hearts, wherever we may be. For those who are thinking, oh, this isn't for me, this is for someone else, move into our hearts, Lord. For those who may be far from you, move into our hearts, Lord. Call our hearts home to you, to this new identity and direction and hope and purpose and values and goals and gratitude and joy. Amen.